welcome this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God to help us as we look into this material today. Father, thankful for our Savior, thankful that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of, of our sin was placed upon him, and um, by his stripes we have been healed. And we praise you for that precious promise, and we cling to that promise, we cling to our Savior, and our um, life makes much more sense when we reflect on the cross, when we think about ourselves in light of who you are and in light of what Christ has done for us. And so we pray that you would remind us afresh of your, the great work that you've done through Christ. And we pray that you'd help us as we consider how to study the Bible this morning, that we would uh, use principles of the normal law, laws of human language, as well as um, those that we've learned from your word, to help us to, to grow and to learn, we pray in Jesus' name. All right, well, we are working through a class, a series of classes called How to Study the Bible. And the last two weeks, we saw how the Bible was put together, how it came from the mind of man to the pages of Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, as He uh, inspired the, the actual words of the Scripture, as He led holy men along. Um, and so we, we call that process the process of inspiration that every word that God wanted to have written down for us has been written down in the Bible. And it has been preserved for us by, by the providence of God. And so that we can be confident in the translation that we have in front of us, um, that, that we actually have the word of God as it, as it reflects the, the original autograph. So we have the true Word of God in front of us, the next question we want to consider is, how do we understand it? How can we, how can we know what the Bible is saying? Our understanding of what God intended um, and what he, he had originally intended happens through a process called interpretation. So what is interpretation? And, and then um, how do we use interpretation in order to understand what God intended. So, interpretation can be defined this way. The process by which we understand the author's intended meaning. The process by which we understand the, the author's intended meaning. Alright, so what we want to do is we want to understand the process that we go through by which we understand what the author originally meant. And we're going to come to a principle here at the end of the class that is critical for our understanding of the Scripture, and that is that, that the, the, the Scriptures can never mean what they never meant. So we need to make sure that we understand what the author meant. And the reason for this, this first question there on your first page, why is interpretation so important? Why do you think interpretation is so important? Why is it important that we get it right? All right. Um, let's just take, for example, has someone ever misinterpreted your words? Has someone ever taken something that you said and then said, these are the exact words you said, and you confirmed that, and then they said, this is what it means. You said, no, that's not what it means. You're, what do we normally say? You're taking it out of context. What else was I saying besides those things? Right? 
suppose that you wrote a letter to your sweetheart that read something like this. I'm sitting here drinking a cup of coffee, but I would kill for a a Hershey bar to go along with it. Okay, and two years later, someone comes across your letter and you get a knock on the door and it's the Royal Oak Police Department. They're investigating a murder. And you go down to the station and they interrogate you and you ask, what's going on? I mean, I didn't do anything. And they said, but we have this letter from 2009 that leads us to believe that you are an alcoholic and that you have have motive to commit murder. And you said, wait a second, what's this letter that you're talking about? Read me the letter. And so they read the part that they want to use to, to go against you. I'm sitting here drinking, and I would kill for a Hershey bar. So you're an alcoholic, and you're, you have motive for murder. And you strongly object, and you say, wait a second, that's not what I meant. Read the whole thing. Read the whole letter. Look at who it's addressed to. And you'll understand that I'm not talking about drinking alcohol, and I'm not, I don't have any desire to kill a person, right? I mean, we hate that when people, kind of a silly illustration, but we hate it when someone misinterprets us. Either in what we've said or in what we've written. Why? I mean, it it makes us feel violated, right? Manipulated, cheated, angry. That's not what we meant when we said that. So how do we think God feels when we take His Word and we use it however we want. Right? We take something from His Word and you know, we don't want to go through the work of trying to understand what He really meant. Instead, we want to put our meaning on top of it and use it for our purposes. How do you think God feels? Probably the same way that we feel. right? Violated, manipulated, cheated. You see, the process of interpretation is critical it is very important to understanding the Scripture. And that's why we're taking so many classes to work through this, this process. Because we have to work hard to, to take things in their context, to understand the meaning according to what the original author, God, actually meant. Alright, so does that make sense? That under, understand what, what I'm getting at there and why it's so important? So let's think about interpretation a little bit more deeply. Um, Why is it that interpretation of the Bible is so hard and yet interpretation of one another is so easy? I mean, if you think about it, um, the reason that we don't think about what, what you may not recognize is that you are constantly interpreting people's words. And, and here's the thing is we do this instantaneously without even thinking about it. We just interpret what people are saying based on what we know about them, what we know about our context in history, what we know about the rest of what's being said around it. We are, are quick to, to interpret, and that's good. And that's because the reason we're so good at interpreting when we're talking to other people is because most messages that we receive are contemporary in our time, and they're local. They're in our location. We understand when someone's talking about the Red Wings, they're not talking about some bird. Okay, We're talking about a, a sports team because we live in Detroit and we know the Red Wings and we love the Red Wings. Okay, um, so, so we can interpret instantaneously when other people talk because uh, we are contemporary and local with them. 
we understand the customs, the languages. We, we understand um, other factors that are involved. So, for example, let me just try to illustrate this. If I say something like, go to the chicken, or go to the chicken. You probably would un- try to figure out what I'm saying there. Go to the kitchen, check the fridge, and see if there's a Diet Pepsi in there. Okay, you wouldn't think, okay, let me break this sentence down and see what he's trying to say. Hmm, I wonder what he means by go. Does he mean to drive to the kitchen? Does he mean to fly to the kitchen? Does he mean to walk, to take a bike? What does he mean by kitchen? What is a kitchen, right? We don't do that. Why? Because we understand the, the context. We understand because it's a contemporary, even when I say fridge, it's not even a, an actual word. It's actually just an abbreviation of a word. You understand that uh, instantaneously. Okay, so, so that's why interpretation can be easy with us. Now, still, what, what you should recognize is there's still misinterpretation that happens with us all the time, right? We read somebody's news article, and we say, well, why would they say something like that? And the author's saying, no, that's not what I was saying. You know, they have to, and, and Twitter is, is just the worst for this kind of thing because people try to give their thoughts in 140 characters, and so they're often misinterpreted. But uh, in general, we are good at interpreting people, okay, just instantaneously. But consider this. What were the two things that make us interpret so easily? We are contemporary, same time, and we are local in the same place. But consider this. The Bible, the last part of the Bible that was written was written 1,900 years ago. So are we contemporary to the, to the events that are going on in the Bible? No, lots change. Even if we just thought about uh, what has changed in our country in the last 240 years since its inception. Right? A lot's changed just in our country, but that's only 240 years. Consider 2,000 years that we have a gap between us and the Apostle John, who wrote, wrote the last part of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Okay, And we live in a culture that's 5,000 miles away. So just consider how hard it would be for us to interpret what's going on in another culture. Today, we go over into Israel or somewhere in the Middle East and try to understand all their customs, right? Or, or East Africa or something. And I was just at a conference this week, and uh, one of the missionaries there had been in East Africa for 11 years. And and he said that, that one of the, the things that, that goes on there is that, um, that wives actually feel like when a husband does the dishes, it's actually taking away her dignity. So for them, that, that custom would actually be a bad thing for a husband to do the dishes. And he said, maybe some of you guys want to move to East Africa. But, but, but the point is, is we don't understand those things. And the other thing is they actually have, um, it's, they, they actually sit on separate sides of the auditorium when they, when they uh, go to worship. And for a husband and woman to hold their hands in public would be a sign of, um, of uh, it, it wouldn't be a, a good thing. I, I don't know how to say it. Maybe insubordination, I'm not sure. But, but that they, they don't do that kind of thing. So, so we have a hard time walking into another culture, trying to understand all of their, uh, all the things that they're doing. But consider this. The Bible was written, the last part of it, 2,000 years ago, and it's written in a different culture than what we're used to. So that's why interpretation is so important. So what is our goal in reading and studying the Bible? 
it sounds like this is a really daunting thing and that we're never going to get it, right? But here's, here's our goal. The goal of interpretation is to understand the author's intended meaning. Okay, just like you want when someone picks up something that you had written, just like you want people to actually understand your meaning, so the Bible is. And you recognize that when people look, at, people can look at the exact same verse in the Bible and have multiple interpretations, right? How can that be? How can it be that people can have multiple interpretations of the same passage? And the reason is because everyone doesn't play by the same rules. It would be like having a lineup of people, all with different opinions, okay? They all have your note in front of you that you had written to your sweetheart. And each person has a different opinion about what you said, what you meant. How many meanings of that note are right? Only one. And whose meaning is it? It's the author's intended meaning. Someone could say, well, that's your opinion. I'm looking at this note, and this is what I think it says. But who knows best? Who knows best what that note was about? The author, right? The author had one meaning. And so if we want to be fair in how we look at someone else's text, then we need to, our job is to find out the author's intended meaning when he wrote it. Okay, so what did he mean when he wrote it? All right, does that make sense? Any questions on that? All right, so we are tracking. So how do we do that? How do we make sure that we know what the author's intended meaning is? And the key to that is context. Context, context, context. What was the context in which it was written? There's no magic going on in the writing of Scripture. Okay, There's no decoder ring, no decoder ring <coughs> that we need. Okay, we, we simply need to find out what was the context of the writing when it was written. And there are three parts of the context that we need to consider in order to have proper interpretation. These are your three numbers there on the second page. First, historical context. So historical, literary, and grammatical. Okay, those sound like daunting ideas or words, um, but we'll get to each of them in turn. Okay, today we want to focus on historical context. Don't be scared by these, by these words. We're going to spend some time looking at each of them, but today we want to look at historical context. And here's what we want to consider when it comes to historical context. Here it is on your, on your handout there. Every book of the Bible was written at a particular time, in a particular place, in a given culture, and with a specific purpose. Okay, so every book was written at a particular time, at a specific place, uh, <laughs> in a given culture with a specific purpose. So 
if we want to understand what God's message is for us, we first need to understand its historical context. This is one of the great benefits of working through a book consecutively, like we often do with with the Old Testament books or the New Testament books, but especially the Old Testament books, because sometimes you can get lost in what, what was going on at this time in Israel. And when we start to see the historical context of how these books were written, what was going on in the rest of the world, what's going on with some of these um, enemy nations to the north and to the south and to the east and so on. What's going on? And as we start to see that, it helps to, to make our Bible come alive, doesn't it? And that's why a lot of the sermons that I'm preaching, especially on Sunday night, or, well, we're going to see more in Numbers as well, but you're, you're going to see what's going on in the rest of the world, what's going on in Israel's world during the time of Numbers or during the time of Second Samuel. So, as I mentioned two weeks ago, God did not produce the Bible all at once. Right? The Bible was composed over many years. So I said the last part of the Bible was written around uh, A.D. 95. That was Revelation. But the first part of the Bible was written when? Anyone have any idea? Or how about a book? Do you know what book it would be? It would be the first book that would have been written. Yeah, probably Genesis. Could, could have been Job. We talked about. Okay, Job could have been actually... Um, written before. Now, Genesis would have had to be, been written after the Exodus. The Exodus was around 1450 uh, B.C. So, But Job could have been written even before that, during the time of Abraham. So that would have been around 1000 B.C. This would be Job up here. So that's a possibility. We don't know the exact date. But the point is, look at how many years we have in the writing of the Scriptures. So even if you were living during the time of John, you couldn't just instantaneously interpret what was going on in the book of Genesis. You couldn't do it. Why? You might have had a similar culture, but you lived in a different time. Things have changed from the time of what's the main thing that's changed? How did people come to worship God after the Exodus? Right? I would draw. I was going to draw an altar here, but okay, they they did it through sacrifices. So what happened between Moses and the Apostle John? What's one main thing, right? We have the cross, and so things have changed. Lots of things have changed. He can't interpret things instantaneously. So we need to keep that in mind if we're going to to look at Scripture. Not only are we way far away from where John was, but we're also way far away from where Moses was as well. So that means every part of uh, our learning needs to be focused on context. And first we want to start with historical context. Um, The fact is that meanings of words change over time. I mean, this is one of the challenges to studying the Scripture that meanings of words change over time. Can you think of any words that have changed since the time that you were a child that meant one thing while you were a child, but it means something completely different now? Oh, man? What did that mean when you were a child? Like a, like a exclamation of, um, yeah. 
any of the other words when you were a child? Exactly, that's the one I was thinking of. Right? We used to watch the Flintstones, and we'll have a gay old time. Well, that doesn't mean the same thing that it meant when I was watching the Flintstones. Yeah, it used to mean happy. Now it has a completely different meaning, right? Or, um, you know, maybe the word bad actually meant bad. Some people actually use it to mean good now. That that thing is so bad. Bill. So, so again, we have this other challenge that words have um, meaning at one time in, in human history and then it changes over time. So we need to, to recognize that, uh, that when we go through to look at the Scripture. Um, so how do we know what a word means within its context? When we come to a word like love or like peace, what, what do they mean by that? Well, one of the, the helpful things, and we're going to try to expand on this as we continue through these classes, but let me just give you a, um, a primer here that uh, one of the things that you ought to do is look within the book that you're writing. So how does Paul use the word faith in his book? Okay, Does he mean the same thing by faith as James means in his letter? Um, so look in, in the rest of the book to see how else he uses it or the word uh, peace or something like that. And then also a good study Bible or a commentary is helpful. In, in looking at these things as well. So let's consider some of these aspects of, uh, we just looked at time, consider that some things change over time, um, and certainly meaning meanings of words change over time, how they're used at least. That's why the, um, the dictionary is not something that's just um, firm, it's, in stat- it's something that's um, dynamic, isn't it? It's something that's constantly changing. They're taking words out, putting new words in, talk, adding new um, definitions for how words are used and so on. The second thing we consider when we're looking at historical context is place. So we need to consider the place in which it is written. And a lot of Bibles are helpful in this way that they just have a brief summary of of where this book was written. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians or something like that? Or where was this church located in in the larger um, in the larger area? I mean, think about it for us. How important is it for us to understand a, pl- a place? <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> when we think, <coughs> just a second. Um, when we think of a plane crash, okay? So if a plane crash happened in downtown New York versus the middle of Iowa, okay, does that change anything in how we're going to interpret that story? Yeah, it's going to change the number of people versus maybe hogs or corn stalks that are damaged, right? Um, and so we need to recognize that. that, that, that we, it's good for us to understand the place in which something was written. Um, so most Christians today obviously live thousands of miles away from the countries where the Bible events were taking place. So that means that we ought to be we com- become familiar with kind of the terrain. So when... When Jesus is constantly going up to Jerusalem, what does that mean? 
Does that mean he's going up north like we constantly say, we're going up north? No, it means that Jerusalem was actually set on a hill, and everywhere you came into Jerusalem, you had to go up. And that's why he's constantly going up to Jerusalem. And so as you learn the Bible terrains, it starts to fill in some more of the gaps that we have. And obviously maps and Bible atlases are good to help us in this way. (coughs) Uh, Thirdly, culture. The third aspect. of understanding uh, the historical context is culture. So uh, I already touched on this a little bit, but but our modern-day thought and behavior, how we do things here, we're, we just instantaneously know why we do those things and why it's okay for a husband and wife to hold hands in public or why it's okay for a husband to do the dishes every now and again. We know why that's okay in our culture, but we don't know that in other cultures, Right? Um, so we need to understand what is the Roman culture? What did they expect of the average average citizen? What was it about the Greeks that, that they didn't see um, some of these Jewish laws as that important? Um, what about in Moses' day? What, what were, how does that differ from how we live in our American culture today? Um, so culture. Fourthly, the final aspect to consider when looking at the historical context is purpose. Let's look at some examples of this. Turn to John chapter 20. One of the most helpful things that you can see when you're looking through a text or a book is to find out what the purpose was. Okay, wh- why was John writing this gospel? And sometimes they just come right out and say it. And I think John does right here in John 20. Would someone read verses 30 and 31? Alright, so what do you think the purpose is of John's Gospel based on these two verses that we looked at? Specifically, verse 31. Okay. Anyone want to add to that? Okay, so John has an express purpose. The reason he chose these events I think John actually is the one who does go on to say, you know, yeah, actually at the end of verse 20, or at at the end of the very book, he says, you know, if I had, if I wrote about everything that Jesus had done and said, then there wouldn't be enough scroll to contain all of it. So I've chosen these specific ones, like Paul said, but he did it for an express purpose. Look, Look at the text again, verse 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John wants his readers to be confident in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he's going to have large sections where he's showing Jesus' miracles and how that points to the Old Testament. This, this was to fulfill what the Old Testament prophets said about the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Um, so we have, sometimes the authors just come right out and say it. This is why I've written. I think John does that here. Look Back to Luke chapter 1. See if you can identify the purpose of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1. 
Let's only read verses 1 through 4. lots of questions we could ask of these first four verses. But to whom is Luke writing primarily? Theophilus, right? I want to, verse 3, write it out for you in consecutive order. So he's telling the kind of the means by which he's going. I want to give you a consecutive summary of what Jesus did. All right? So what, what would be the purpose then? Do you see anything in those first four verses? Yes, look at that last verse, verse 4. So that you may know the exact truth about which you have been taught. So I'm not teaching anything new, but I want you to be certain that what is, what you've learned about Jesus is true. And so here it is. So here are the acts of Jesus Christ. And, and the book of Acts goes on to do something very similar. And he says, you know, now I want to, I, I started with this consecutive order. Now I want to continue on with what I have been saying. And this is how the gospel's being spread when Jesus is gone. Now that Jesus is gone, now Jesus actually ascends there at the beginning of Acts, but but that's the point, is how the gospel spreads through the apostles. Alright, let's try another one. First John five. First John chapter five. Would someone read verse 13? All right, let me ask teenagers that are here, what do you think is the purpose of First John based on that verse? Okay, look at verse 13. These are written to you who believe, and the last part of the verse says, so that you may know you have eternal life. So this is a great passage to go to, great book to go to, when we are doubting our salvation, right? Because John wants us to know that we can know for sure that we have eternal life. So here are the tests that he gives, you know. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Do you love your brother? Are you obeying His commandments? Those are the three main things. Those are the three main tests of life, right? You want to check your spiritual pulse to see if you got one? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you obeying His commandments? And do you love your brother? Okay. Um, those are the three main ways. So here's what I'm writing down. I'm writing it so that you will know that you have eternal life. So authors are, are helpful in that way to give us clear statements of purpose. But you probably... No, because you've read through the scriptures um, probably multiple times that the authors always don't don't always do that, right? They don't always explicitly state their purpose. 
And so instead, we need to examine the, the text for clues. And we'll talk about how to do this, and we'll use examples specifically in, in passages, because it's not important just to understand why the purpose of the whole book, but it's actually important to understand the purpose of the, the section that you're, you're working through. And so I'll, I'll work through some questions that we can use to help us. But, but just to give you a brief summary, when we deal with a New Testament epistle, like 1 John, or an Old Testament prophet, then we should ask questions like this. Who is writing? To whom are, is he writing? Right. So who's the author? Who are the recipients? What is the situation in the, the, that the author um, and the reading, reader are dealing with right now? Right. What, what kind of circumstances led the author to write First Corinthians? Why did Paul write First Corinthians? I mean, anyone know why the, why he wrote there? We're going through that on Wednesday night. There's all sorts of problems going on in the church, right? So he needs to write to clear some things up. And and so he doesn't come out right out and say, "Here is why I'm writing," but he answers specific questions that they have and that he has found to be troublesome. Um, we also can ask. Are there any problems or, or issues explicitly identified? Are there repeated themes or a single idea holding the book together? So that's how we look at epistles and prophets. When we deal with narratives, we need to consider what the author chooses to put in and what he chooses to leave out. Um, so, for example, why did the author of Samuel put in the story about David's sin with Bathsheba? But have you ever noticed that as you're reading through the Chronicles, that story's not there. So why is that? Why did one author put it in and one author leave it out? And those are some questions that we need to consider. And, and I think most likely it is because Second Samuel is trying to to show that King David is not perfect. He's a sinner, and we have been seeing that on Sunday night, that he needs a Savior. He's not our Savior. Um, but Chronicles instead is, is leaving that kind of thing out because it wants to show David in a, in a, in a brighter light. That is, that, that he is the king that God has established, and he is Israel's king. And Israel should be grateful for, to God um, for this king. Not, not as uh, an object of worship by any means, but that actually points to a greater king. So other books are more difficult to try to understand the purpose, like Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And so in there we need to just search for dominant themes and, and hints at what the author is concerned about. Let me give you um, two principles, one I already mentioned, but, but two principles that we should consider um, when we're working through the text of Scripture. And here, here's the first one. It's on the bottom of the third page. We should read the Bible more like, sorry, that should be capitalized. We should read the Bible more like a novel and less like a spiritual encyclopedia. More like a novel, less like a spiritual encyclopedia. So instead of trying to cherry pick, this verse belongs to me and I'm going to use it for what I want to use it for. Let's take this verse, consider what it is in its context, make sure we understand its meaning before we use it for ourselves. Okay? Um, we, we do this naturally when we read the newspaper. right? We don't look for key words and and we're, we're trying to connect all these things and, and try to get into this really deeper meaning. We just read it. And, again, because the, the, 
the context is contemporary and local, we can often pick up on what the author is trying to do. But when we come to the Bible, for some reason, we change and we, we turn into this um, kind of decodering mentality and we kind of pick and choose which verses we want to use. And even though this verse is in the context of something that's a little bit more difficult to understand, I'm still going to use this verse for what I want it to mean. And that's, again, that's not faithful to the author. So let me just give you an example of how that's been misused, and maybe you've sat in a, a church service where it's been used in this way. Turn over to Joel chapter 3. Daniel, and then Hosea and Joel. Joel chapter 3. And notice verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Okay, perhaps you've heard that those words before when um, somebody was preaching the gospel and then during the, the invitation they had this group of people who are in the valley of decision ready to make a choice. Should they follow Christ or not? And so they quote a verse like this. Now, often they're not trying to do harm to the text of Scripture, but, but actually um, they're misrepresenting what this text is about. We've worked through this back in, I think it was 2009, went through the book of Joel. This text is not about someone making a decision. Look at the next line in verse 14. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What's going on here is, is um, Joel, on behalf of God, is is uh, prophesying judgment that is coming on the people of Judah. And and it's not that God has to make a decision, because this is actually pointing forward to the battle of Armageddon. And it's not that someone has to make a decision. The decision's already been made. They, Those who oppose Christ will be destroyed. It's already made. So for a preacher to get up there and use this verse to mean something like, you need to make a choice. You're in the valley of decision or indecision. You need to make a choice. Is not faithful to what it actually means. Um, so, it's important that we understand uh, a text within its context. And I think we, we have been, um, I think, trained in that way to, to actually pick out verses and use them. Um, some of that is good. Okay, we, I, I learned verses growing up in, in Awana, and I'm sure you were in church when you were young. You, you did something similar. And those verses still um, are important to me. They're, they're valuable to me. I use them. Um, but, but we need to make sure that we understand what they mean in the context. So I'm not suggesting we get rid of all um, proof texting or all just looking at individual verses, but... I am saying that we ought to be careful in how we use them. So, so let me give you another example. Okay, let, let's consider Exodus chapter 20, where you have God giving the laws, the Ten Commandments, right? Someone could look at that passage and say something like, well, it looks like that we shall have no, no other gods. We shall not make any idols. We, we need to obey the Sabbath. I missed the third one there. Um... We need to honor our parents, right? We need to not murder, not commit adultery. 
those things all look like things that, that we must do in order to be accepted by God. In other words, if I want to be saved, I need to do the Ten Commandments. So we could take those out of context, but if actually look at it in its context, we should see that, that God's not actually trying to bring them to salvation. He's saying, I already preserved you, right? I already saved you out of Egypt. And so these are the expression of those people who have made a genuine covenant with me. Right? With their hearts. They have willingly already turned to me. They've been regenerated. They've been saved. And so if you have been saved, this is what it, your life ought to look like as an Israelite. You will obey these commandments. So we need to interpret every text in light of its historical context. It's, it's time. It's place. It's um, culture, and then also its purpose. We can't just take a text out and force it to mean, hey, it's God's Word, so hey, I can just use it however I want. Um, one of the, you know, this is a really ridiculous example, but, but when Paul says in Ephesians, I think it's chapter 4 or 5 there, he says, let him who steals, steal no longer. Right? We could say, well, let's just take one part of that. Let him who steals, steal. Leave that last part out. Right? It's kind of ridiculous to do that, but, but sometimes we can we can do that when we take a verse, and like the multitudes, right, in the Valley of Decision. We take it out of its context. We take it for what we want to use, our purposes, rather than first understanding what did the author mean. Now, based on what he meant, how does that apply to my situation? Right? It's less about me making the decision. It's more <coughs> about God already guaranteeing judgment on those who, who reject him. Um, so here's the second principle, and very similar um, to what we, looked at, what we have looked at and what I've already mentioned. A text can never mean what it never meant. Okay, so back to the the letter to the sweethearts, right? Did the author ever mean anything about having a problem with alcohol or a desire for murder? Okay. So we can't take a text, give it our own meaning, and force it on to what God meant. We would be like those people who are standing in line looking at, well, you know, based on what I, I'm looking at, based on my opinion, this is what I think. God says. Well, what does God? <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> what does God really mean? That's that's what we're trying to get at. Um, there is a single integrated revelation of God's intention regarding uh, what He wants in in Scripture. Our job is to use the tools that He's given us and the basic laws of human language. We're going to talk a lot about more about those. <coughs> one of the other principles we're going to come across is that a word can only have one meaning in one context. Now, there are exceptions to that, which sometimes people use on entendre, double entendres and, and so on, but or puns. But for the most part, it, we, can't, we can't communicate when we have multiple meanings. 
we have to have one single meaning. So what is it that meaning? How do we get to that? And I am excited to go through this with you uh, these next several weeks. Um, so we're going to work some more through these basics of interpretation. And then we're going to get in the last six weeks, we're going to get into details of what it looks like when we take an actual text of scripture and do some observation and, and uh, dissection and then application. All right. Any questions or comments? Yeah, because if you have if you have one part of scripture that looks like it's teaching a works based salvation, then we can't develop a whole theology just on that one part of scripture if the rest of the scripture says no, salvation is not by works, it is by grace. So I what I'm thinking of is James chapter two, that faith without works is dead. So, you know, faith plus works equals salvation. That's what I get from James 2. Well, that can't be what it, James means. Why? Because we know from other parts of Scripture, in fact, we know from all of the rest of Scripture, that's not what he's saying. And even from James's own letter, we can see that, that he's actually talking about uh, grace-based salvation. But what he's saying is that those who are truly saved will not be devoid of works. They will have a life of good works. So, yeah, it's a good point. And what theologians call that is the analogy of Scripture. So we interpret one single section in light of the larger section, and we interpret the larger section in light of its parts, its smaller parts. So, so basically, our overall theology is helping us to inform how to interpret a single passage, and, a, and our study of a single pa- passage helps us to interpret the rest of the, our theology. It helps to, so we're actually constantly feeding back and forth. We're, we're learning individual passages, and that's feeding our theology, and our theology is helping feed. You know, we, we might like to think, okay, I'm going to come in here with a, 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 a blank slate. Like, I don't have any thoughts on this passage whatsoever. We can't do that. I think we're going to get into that a little bit um, one of the later classes to say that no matter what we come to, we always have a presupposition, a pre-understanding, a pre-idea when we come to a text. So we can't fully just get rid of all that and understand it, this passage just in its, its bareness. Um, and so that I think that's the point that Melissa's driving at. It's a good one. All right. Anything else? All right. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And, and um, Lord, we apologize for sometimes making the study of your word um, more difficult than it has to be. Um, it's as simple as just learning what your intention is, what your intended meaning was. And sometimes we use it more like a code book or some kind of a encyclopedia where we're just going to look up just the things we want to see and ignore all the context around it. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful in interpreting your word as we read it each day and as we study it together as a church. Help us now as we do that. In this next hour, we pray in Jesus' name.